Produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Thank you for choosing to listen to Waterline, the podcast about water. We will examine a drop of the many elements carried by the subject of water. We will explore, amongst other topics, economic, political and environmental aspects and challenges presented by water. So, where to begin? The topic is as wide as an ocean. Uh, pardon the pun. Anyhow, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, I confess it never crossed my mind, but water is a closed system. On a global level, that is. The amount of it is finite. We are unable to add any more water to the system, nor subtract. Next winter's rainfall is still packed in the tomato you will have in your salad for dinner. Exactly how much water is there on our planet, you ask? Well, quite a bit. Nearly one and a third quadrillion liters. That's 1,386 trillion liters. Liters. Enough to fill more than 550 billion Olympic swimming pools. This amount consists of oceans, rivers and lakes, glaciers, icebergs and the ice packs in both poles. Oh, and in the air we breathe. If we divide this amount by the number of humans on Earth, all 7 billion of us, it works out to be roughly 80 Olympic swimming pools per person. There is a catch, though. The amount of accessible potable water, the actual amount of fresh water we humans, our livestock and our crops can consume, is far less. Minute, come to think of it. Not even a teaspoon from a bottle of a liter. I remember, quite vividly, the first time I was told how nature plays with our water. How the entire cycle of evaporation, condensation, precipitation works. My kindergarten teacher held a beautiful image, the blue sea on the right-hand side and a snow-capped mountain on the other side, with a voluminous gray cloud in between. From the mountain down came a stream, which in turn became a river that fed the sea. Besides being a natural fact, the hydrologic cycle is a great way to teach children how things are interlocked and connected, how well an uninterrupted system operates. However, as adults... Do we still remember how things are interconnected? What happens once we add us humans into the equation? We learn that we've only heard half of the story. The model of evaporation, condensation, precipitation is a mere half-circle of the life cycle of water, not a full one. Not for a moment do I think that my beloved kindergarten teacher misled me, tried to deceive me, or withheld essential truths about the world. Looking back, I think that she was unaware of the crucial part we humans play in how the story of water ought to be told. Allow me to suggest the forgotten, complementing half-circle. Once the water is accumulated, be it in a lake, a river, or an underground reservoir, the cycle is harvest, consume, discard. 
Besides the most obvious consumption in the form of drinking water, we use water in many, many ways. We clean with it, either ourselves or our surroundings. We use it to grow our food and to sustain our livestock. We harness its power to produce electricity. We use waterways for commerce and water bodies for recreation. Water plays a role in everything we do, even in the least imaginable instances. But you never thought of the fact that your smartphone is made with water too. From the tiniest chip to its state-of-the-art glass panel, 910 liters of water were used in total to make one single smartphone. And what happens once we're done using the water when it becomes waste? We get rid of it, of course. The easiest way? Let gravity do the work. Water will always find the lowest point and onwards to the river or the sea. But once passed through us in the most literal way as well, untreated wastewater has the ability to harm our water sources. But enough with numbers and hard facts. Let us breathe some fresh air and go out to admire the life and beauty water brings to our lives. The River Rhine is the second longest river in Europe, stretching for just a bit more than 1,200 kilometers, roughly 720 miles. Carving its way through six countries, it originates in the Swiss Alps, flows easterly towards Austria, brushes the Principality of Liechtenstein, where it performs a sharp turn to the west and makes its way to form Lake Constance. Exiting Lake Constance, the Rhine forms a physical border between Germany and France. The rolling hills alongside the German Rhine are laden with lush green vineyards producing the famous Rhine wine. On its way north, imposing medieval palaces, castles and fortresses are dotted along its route. Exiting Germany and entering the flatlands of the Netherlands, it becomes part of the Rhine-Meuse-Schelt Delta, and on it flows to the North Sea. You can find many famous cities downstream. Basel in Switzerland, Vaduz, Liechtenstein's capital, Strasbourg in France, Mainz, Koblenz, Bonn, Köln and Düsseldorf, to name but a few of the German cities along the route, and Utrecht and Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Owing to its location, it is quite clear how this body of water played a significant role throughout history. For the Romans, it formed the northern border of their empire, and the empire's demise is attributed to the early 5th century's crossing of the Rhine, when northern Germanic tribes crossed the river and breached Roman defenses. Commerce along its route throughout the centuries established its prominence as an economic powerhouse, and it made sense to base various industries on its banks. Coal and minerals found beneath the Earth's surface along the Rhine meant that mines opened to excavate these precious materials, and the river became one of the continent's most prominent industrial, commercial and agricultural centers. Oh, and the primary source of drinking water for millions of people along the way. And as time went by, technology, engineering and chemistry got more elaborate. The population grew, and the number of the Rhine's users increased, and the river's ability to serve all of its users well began to diminish. March 23, 1945. The Allied forces launch Operation Plunder. 
the crossing of the Rhine from southwest into Nazi Germany. The Rhine, which was dubbed Germany's shield for generations in an old British Pathé newsreel, witnesses an assault of tens of thousands of soldiers and heavy artillery. Some historians describe it as using a sledgehammer to crack open a hazelnut. Blood, mud and explosives all spills into the river Rhine. September 2nd, 1945. The Second World War ends. This war's victors are indisputable. But it seems there are no winners. The war's aftermath is inconceivable. Humanity saw what happens once its ferocity is untamed. The world lost roughly 3% of its population. Topping this gruesome league table is Poland that lost nearly 17% of its citizens to Nazi atrocities and crimes against humanity. After six years and a day, the entire world, beaten and battered, entered an age of many re's. Political reorganization, financial rejuvenation, industrial regeneration. nature, after a great fire, once flames subside, life takes over quickly. Green shoots emerge between the remnants, and charred trees grow young, green twigs. Life's greatest forces come into play, and the world becomes anew. The human version of this natural phenomenon is creating life and living it to its fullest. People wish to compensate for years of austerity, thus consuming more, and hence producing more. In comes hyper-industrialism, consumerism, and rapid financial growth. No time to stop and think or plan ahead. There is a lot of lost time to make up for. And the Rhine? The Rhine bore the brunt in post-war Europe. Yes, by the time the Rhine made its way through six European countries, the pristine alpine melted snow became heavily polluted. Something had to be done. In response, on July 1, 1950, the countries along the Rhine established a new organization, the ICPR, International Commission for the Protection of the Rhine. It was really shortly after the Second World War, so the first years were actually just there to build up the trust between the countries, to build up mutual understanding, to first start the monitoring of the pollutants. This is Dr. Tabea Stotel, an environmental scientist from the ICPR. The first years were more kind of a loose connection, diplomatic discussions, building this monitoring network so we at least know how the situation looks like. The first goals were really to reduce the pollution. Back then, also like now, the best way was to build wastewater treatment plants because back then the Rhine was just used as a sewer, basically. They let everything in there. It changed colors depending on the industry. The industry? Well, almost anything imaginable, from pharmaceuticals to hydroelectric dams. ICPR's member states understood they must do something rather than just talk. They saw we have to deal with the issues 
along the Rhine because it's densely populated. We have a lot of industry. We have at the border Switzerland-Germany in Basel, there is a lot of chemical industry and a lot of pharmaceutical industry. And then also going further down, we have, for example, here in this area, BASF, a big chemical industry. And actually, it continues like this. If you look along the Rhine, the industry is really dense. Of course, agriculture is also an issue. Agriculture is spread all over the Rhine catchment, basically. It starts already in Switzerland. Europe is so densely populated and used everywhere where there is not a city, there is agriculture. And to understand why agriculture is on par with the chemical industry and how come the food we grow can become a source of contamination, here's a crash course in water pollution. There are two main sources of water pollution. Point source, for example, a pipe spilling untreated wastewater from a plant into a body of water, and non-point source, the runoff of water after heavy rainfall from city streets, down a mountain and into the sea. When you look at the industry points, these are point sources and we can control them nowadays quite good. But with the agriculture, it's much more complicated because they don't have just one point source, but diffuse sources. So different input pathways. And it's much more difficult to control them. So we are still facing problems, for example, with pesticides, which are coming from agriculture after heavy rainfalls. The runoff from crop fields to water bodies and non-point source pollution carries pesticides and nutrients and has quite a devastating effect on the water. It is a challenge worldwide. Once fertilizers and pesticides from farms spill into a river, a lake or even the sea, they enrich the water in a way that cultivates the growth of algae. We won't get into the chemical and biological mechanisms behind this type of pollution, but just ask the residents of Toledo, Ohio, all 500,000 of them, and they will happily tell you about their nightmare experience when they were banned from using their tap water due to toxins found in the water supplied to the city from Lake Erie. Lake Erie, located between the USA and Canada, is surrounded by farmland and is a source of fresh water for more than 10 million people, and the algae growth in it can usually be dealt with. It is monitored, and measures are being taken to reduce its impact on the lake. But in August 2014, residents of Toledo were ordered not to drink the water, brush their teeth, prepare food, or give tap water to their pets. People with a weak immune system and children were advised by the authorities not to shower in tap water. The Ohio National Guard supplied city residents with thousands of gallons of drinking water and distribution centers for bottled water were set up. The city came to a halt. It took three days until things got back to normal and emergency measures were taken to curtail the algae growth. In late 2017, the algae bloom in Lake Erie began to show an alarming build-up once again. The sources of pollution in our frail drinking systems vary. Many things cause damage. So, while it may seem very handy to create categories identifying these sources of pollution, it might actually obstruct our overall view and understanding of the issues. Here's engineer Yaron Ben-Ari, Water Technology Program Manager from the Standardization Division at the Standards Institution 
of Israel. The primary sources of drinking water are natural water sources like natural wells or lakes. It's pretty clear how water can be contaminated as a result of poor air quality or sewage running into it. Transport may also cause water contamination, and this happens when barges transport goods on rivers like the Rhine. The barges going down the stream with the oil that spills from its engine contributes to pollution of that water. Even today, power plants require water sources. So they take water from nearby water sources and contaminate them while doing so. Beyond that, for many years, all these systems have constituted a bypass. If a sewage system didn't work, the contaminated water would flow into the rivers. Why? Because it so happens that rivers or such water sources are located at the lowest point in terms of ground level in any given area. And that is why in terms of topography, it is going to end up there. This is basically one recurring cycle, so it is not surprising that natural water sources and drinking water are depleting. Although there is water that can be easily purified to be used as drinking water, there are also water sources that are at a certain level of contamination that requires a much more complex purification process, which is also very expensive. I can say wholeheartedly, even though there has been no research conducted, nor will there be, to prove it, the mortality rate in Africa, which ranges between the ages of 40 to 50, is partly due to contaminated water. Contaminated water won't poison people instantly, but consumption of it over time will result in illness and very poor health. There are entire areas in the world where people drink low-quality water. The best way to treat our drinking water is to avoid contaminating the resource in the first place. Back to 1970s Europe and the Rhine's slow but very promising recovery. The ecosystem recovered really, really well. I'm actually surprised that it can recover after such a tremendous pollution, but it does that on its own. And the ecology view on the whole topics and that we include this in our work came after the Sanders accident, actually. November 1st, 1986. Schwitzerhalle Industrial Complex, Basel, Switzerland. Half past midnight, fire erupts in a warehouse holding at least 1,300 tons of chemicals such as mercury, pesticides and dyes. The old warehouse was designed in the 1960s to house machinery but was converted to store chemicals in the late 70s. Swiss firefighters rushed to the scene and after long hours, they managed to extinguish the fire. 6 a.m. At first light, the magnitude of the catastrophe is realized. The warehouse burned to the ground. It is estimated that nearly 20 million liters of water were used to douse the fire. The warehouse, lacking proper fire safety mechanisms, was not equipped with adequate water runoff collection facilities. The result, 30 tons of pesticides and dyes, as well as 200 kilograms of mercury, were washed straight into the river Rhine. Utter devastation. All aquatic life throughout a stretch of 400 kilometers is gone. Half a million fish die. 150,000 eels die, and a report states that this species is effectively extinct. The pumping of drinking water is halted, and production in breweries in Dusseldorf is suspended. 
fresh water kept flowing down the Rhine, but the situation was dire. When this wave of these pesticides was through, the water coming afterwards was kind of okay again. So the Rhine was always used. So the drinking water industry stopped only for something like 10 days. Afterwards, they used it again. But it took a while for the Rhine to recover completely, especially the ecology. I mean, you can use the water then again for the drinking water industry because it's coming new water afterwards. But of course, the ecology needs time to recover. And there maybe it's one or two years until it can work again. Because if you kill just everything, of course, it takes a while until the, the whole ecosystem is functioning again. But contaminating water sources can be an unforeseen consequence just like the contamination of the Rhine. Engineer Ben-Ari. In India, for example, the price of water for agricultural purposes is little to nothing, including the price of the energy to produce the water itself, and this is why they succeeded in polluting all of their aquifers. If you pump too much water from the aquifer, seawater gets in because there can be no void. Due to the fact that the cost of electricity to operate water pumps to produce water for agriculture is extremely low, they are pulling water from the center of the earth almost. They polluted aquifers located 40 kilometers inland. India, if you remember, is a subcontinent. It is almost entirely surrounded by water, sort of like a half island, and has pumped an alarming amount of its fresh water. So subsidies supporting an industry ended up ruining water sources. And because things are interconnected, at times though, even when you try to tackle the problem head-on, you might find yourself stuck because certain players are stronger than others. In Italy, northern Italy, around Milan, I asked them how they're addressing the issue of industrial sewage, if they have any rules or requirements. To this, they explicitly said that all of the water is groundwater and the factories are depleting these water sources. They just might wake up one morning to find they have no more water to pump and resort to using drinking water. They cannot seem to establish regulation that is effective enough to manage and control these factories. This means that if they neglect to implement proper standards to address the treatment of the industrial sewage they discard and the way it is transported to the sewage treatment plants, assuring that water eventually reaches the urban sewage system to the municipal sewage treatment plant, then eventually this sewage will end up reaching the drinking water sources around. There is no doubt about that. Back to the ICPR and Dr. Stotter. For the River Rhine, it seemed that all the players understood that in order to fix a wicked problem like the pollution of the river, they all needed to come together. But it did take a disaster to get things going. The point where it changed a lot was the catastrophe of Sandos. And it changed also because the people went on the street and demonstrated. So it was a political issue. It was a pressure coming really from the population. They said, we don't want to live with this Rhine like this. That's not working anymore. We need a change. So it was really like a bottom-up pressure. And 
that forced the politicians to react, I would say. I think also we have to admit that everyone worked together. It was not only the population, but also all the administrations and the communities and so on. So everyone helped in the end to improve the situation. And already one year later, we had a really ambitious program called the Rhine Action Program, where they phrased specific goals for the Rhine, like reducing the contamination for 50 till 70 percent, or to reintroduce vanished fauna species like the salmon. They phrased specific goals in this Rhine Action Program, and that really accelerated our work because we had now an ambitious program and that worked quite well, actually. The, the Rhine recovered in the following years a lot. So how do you dance this tango between proper infrastructure and regulation? Who leads? Dr. Stotter thinks that it depends on what you are trying to achieve at any given point in time and place. When I consider the whole history of the ICPR and the development of the at least water quality, I would say that Building all the wastewater treatment plants to build these facilities, these technical solutions, improved the water quality significantly. That was maybe one of the most important steps to take. Nowadays, where we have reduced this big contamination, we can look at other things. We can now focus on, for example, micropollutants. We can look at the ecosystem so that all the normal species here are welcome again and can migrate and can live here. So now we can focus on more complicated issues and there the directives help a lot because the pressure is not that high anymore because the biggest pollution is gone. So the directives help to keep the pressure alive. When asked the same question, engineer Ben Ari from the Standards Institution of Israel had quite a surprising answer. It is holistic, he says. Look at the broader picture. At the end of the day, the environment is a global issue. The world focuses on the economy and what hurts your own pocket, you are sure to take care of. So, beside it being all nice to discuss saving the environment, at the end of the day, when you purify water and supply drinkable water to citizens, less people suffer from illnesses. Treating the ill is expensive, so it is an economic problem, really. When you improve the quality of living, you end up having to use less resources for the state and the end consumer. The average independent industrialist doesn't want to invest the high cost required in this regard, so there is no choice but to force him to do so. This goal is a priority for the country and society. In short, it's the economy, stupid. To paraphrase, Take care of the pounds, and the pennies will take care of themselves. When presented with Benari's remark, Dr. Stotter stopped for a moment and said, I think you can have it both ways. Either the people speak and build up pressure, or the economy sees a benefit in improving the situation. It depends also on the countries themselves as how the situation is, how the structures are. I guess it can be different in different parts of the world. How is the Rhine doing today? What do you see outside your, your office's window? 
It's doing quite good. We have relatively low water, I would say, at the moment, um, but it's doing okay. <laughs> Nowadays, we don't have the big pollution anymore, but we still have a lot of topics we are working on. I mentioned micropollutants, for example, so like the, all the pharmaceuticals in the Rhine and so on. They will keep us busy and they keep us busy right now. Also, of course, climate change. Uh, will keep us busy in the future, so there are still topics we are facing. The salmon is one of our main important species. First of all, it's a lovely species and uh, it belongs to the Rhine. And it was lost completely, first of all because of the pollution and this we overcome. The Rhine is clean enough for the salmon to return. And then it's a migrating species and it has problems migrating upstream again because of all the barriers along the way. And we had the goal that until 2020 it's able to reach Basel again. And we can see already that it comes back. We have a lot of fish ladders now along the Rhine and every year there are more and more salmons coming back. It can't reach Basel yet but it's coming back more and more and we are really happy about that. It has been quite a long journey down the river Rhine. As water pollution is a global phenomenon, because of poor regulation, inadequate infrastructure, incentives that promote one thing whilst turning a blind eye to the other direction, one might get discouraged quite easily. Maybe it is because of the optimistic tone in Dr. Tabea Stotter's voice, but I did really believe her answer once I asked her if there is a lesson to be learned from ICPR's work. When we look at the history of the ICPR, we can say, don't give up, <laughs> basically. <laughs> because even though people might face problems and sometimes they feel you don't make any progress at all, also for us, it took decades to really improve the situation, but in the end, it did. Just face on one common goal, and then you will make it at some point. Sooner or later, you will make it. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.